The following episode of the 9pm edict contains strong language, adult themes, bad jokes, and thinking, and two songs. Sunday, the 21st of March, 2021. In this second episode of the Autumn Series, I'm joined by philosopher Patrick Stokes. He lectures uh, in philosophy at Deakin University in Melbourne. Topics like personal identity, time, death and moral psychology, which uh, raises the point, is there an immoral psychology? We'll be talking about most of those things, plus fleas, Clive Palmer and the Lost Boys of Dalesford. Australia is the only settler colonial society where missing kids becomes this big defining cultural trope. We'll also be talking about how everyone is always doing philosophy. Ah, you're already doing it. Everyone is. Everyone's always doing philosophy, whether they realise it or not. This is the 9pm self-heating underpants of death with philosopher Patrick Stokes. Pat Stokes, welcome to the pod. Thank you very much for having me. Now, you're a philosopher, which I'll, I'll come to shortly, or at least eventually, probably, but you're also in Melbourne, and I, right now, I'm in Sydney. Given the news this month, I want to ask you, which city is best, Sydney or Melbourne? <laughs> uh, look, obviously, as a Melbourneian, you expect me to say Melbourne, uh, but let yes. me just cunningly confound your uh, your expectations there. Um, you know, we only Melbourne people care about this. You know, we, we think that there's a rivalry. It's not a rivalry when one side doesn't even know the other one exists. And I mean, oh, I, wow. I, I mean, no, look, I spend a lot of time on Twitter, you know, getting into that and arguing that, you know, insisting they're potato cakes and not scallops and, you know, insisting that there's just a howling wasteland between Bell Street and the Coral Sea. But, um, you know, it, it's uh, to be really, really kind of, you know, disappointingly non confrontational. Um, I, I think I've been to every Australian capital now except Darwin, and they're all actually really great. They're all good cities. There are none yes. of them that you would be like, oh, this is an absolute hole, I don't want to be here. Um, so, I mean, I, and Sydney's lovely. Sydney's a really nice city, and yes, it's, you know, a little brash and a little, you know, <laughs> um, can be a little, <laughs> little shiny and superficial in a way that Melbourne being, you know, deep and brooding and you know, emo and unlikable is not. Um, but, you know, it's, it's you know, they're, they're, they're both really good cities. And, you know, the, the the linguistic diversity and stuff is actually really interesting. So I'm not, I'm not actually a Melbourne bigot. I just play one on, on Twitter. Excellent. So. Well, look, um, I have drifted away from the quarantines a bit in recent episodes of this pod because we've, we've sort of settled down into a, a routine now, even in Melbourne, even in Sydney. But that whole... Sydney versus Melbourne thing really kicked off during the quarantines. Mm. The Dan stands and, you know, anyone criticising Premier Dan Andrews in Victoria was roasted mm. uh, or and vice versa for Gladys Berejiklian. Um, did that make any sense to you? Yeah, look, it did. Uh, to the extent that anything made sense last year, right? I mean, mm. it was... It was really, really weird, and I mean, I, I know that some of my fellow Melburnians did get 
um, a little snarky sometimes when you'd have comments from outside because it's like, you know, unless you've been locked in your house for 100 days except for your one hour of mandated government exercise. And I say this as somebody who supports that when it needs to be done, right? I wasn't questioning it. Um, but it's hard. It is genuinely really hard and it does sort of knock you around a bit. And then when you get commentary from outside, you're like, look, if you don't have quite the same skin in the game, maybe, you know, think before you start throwing hand grenades into it to mix metaphors <laughs> hopelessly. Excellent. Uh, look, you're, you're a professional writer and that's uh, what we expect. The more <laughs> metaphors, the better. Our police forces have both been in the news uh, in the last couple of weeks. Now, I'll, I'll play you some grabs. Here is first uh, a nine news story from uh, New South Wales this week. One of the country's top cops is backing an app for sexual consent, which could set to change the way Australians interact. Today's Sydney reporter Gabrielle Boyle is at police headquarters this morning. Gabby, interesting idea. It's an extraordinary idea, Carl, to combat what is a really complex problem. We use apps and technology in our life for so many different things, whether it's ordering food, getting exercise or for our entertainment. But what if technology could be used to formally record consent for intimate experiences? Uh, Mick Fuller, the New South Wales Police Commissioner, says this is an idea we definitely need to explore. We've got very high rates of reporting of incidents to police, but we've got very low conviction rates, particularly here in New South Wales. And if uh, news headlines in recent weeks show anything, it is that women in particular are calling for change. This app could be used to formally record consent before anything takes place. But of course, we know that in intimate experiences, there are so many nuances. It is a really a difficult field to police with simply a signature. And we know that when these intimate experiences start, that consent can be withdrawn. Do you sign on the dotted line and then change your mind later? And where does that put you in a court of law? So many questions. But what we certainly know is that many women are calling for change and that these questions and discussions need to be had. Carl? At least there's a discussion. Good on Mick Fuller. Thanks, Gabby. Yeah, good on Mick Fuller, says Carl <laughs> Stefanovic. There, good on, good on. And, and now he is being portrayed as a leader for starting the conversation, yeah. which uh, women have which, been having, oh not just this week, not just last week, for the last... 50 years or more. Yeah. I mean, look, let's be charitable. Like, to be really charitable here, he is trying to come up with something new here, but it's like I do, the moment is needs something fairly big and dramatic, and I'm not sure that, hey, guys, what if, you know, what if Uber but for not raping women um, is quite what the moment <laughs> needs, you know? That's not the sort of thing. Because, you know, you can see how that's going to go wrong. You can see that it's going to end up being, oh, look, consent was recorded and then a whole bunch of non-consensual things take place. But, you know, that will end up just being used as another out. You know, it's not the sort of, you know, dramatic cultural change that is needed to bring about the outcome. But, but again, at the same time, you can understand the mindset that says, well, let's just offload this onto some sort of formalised system. Well, it, there is this idea that technology will solve everything too, right? That, that technology is magic, that mm. because technology can uh, produce self-heating underpants and, uh, um, you know, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, and well, here, yeah, here yeah. I am sitting here freezing <laughs> like an idiot. When I could be. <laughs> yes, it's the same things like as self-heating socks and so the mm. little chemical reaction in yeah. them. 
but it's only it's, I mean technology is only ever going to be as, as as good or as useful as, as the sort of the culture in which, or in which it's operative and you know that's again you, you you can't change a cultural issue here just by producing an app that's and and the other thing somebody pointed out to the other day which I thought was perfect was apart from anything else the Australian government's or Australian government's record on you know rolling out apps to solve big um, social huh. problems right now has been you know less than stellar yeah, so the idea that people are going to be out, you know, going into clubs and bars and things with their government mandated sex app is just not really, you know. <laughs> I've just got to log in through my my gov. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You just get an email that says you've got a mic up message and nothing else, no way to access it. <laughs> and then if 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 you have a, a kind of consensual route with the same person for three days, three sort of occasions in a row, they'll cut your job seeker because <laughs> you're now in a relationship. Yeah. Well, that's that too. I mean, that's a thing. Like, I'm not like you jest, but like at, the, at some point that data is going to be used in some sort of you know, problematic way. On a more serious note, <laughs> you, you could triangulate it. From, oh, yeah, your COVID app says that you've both been in the same place for, um, you know, for X amount of time. Your consent app says you've been having sex. And, you know, you, you're on Centrelink saying that you're not um, in a cohabiting relationship. It's, it's, all that data could be triangulated. Did you see the other day an, uh, an American woman uh, found out her partner was having an affair because at 2am his Fitbit showed him burning off 500 calories? <laughs> At some that's other, a, that's an impressive amount. That's well, like however much. Yeah. I, 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 I don't <laughs> even know how big how big's a cal- how big's a calorie. I don't know. <laughs> I, don't I must know. ask my doctor that. But in Victoria, that's good. We've turned a whole anti-rape thing into a comedy routine. This is really <laughs> what this podcast is about. <laughs> that's tasteful, classy. Osman Faruqi on the 7am podcast the other day, he was talking about the rise of far-right extremist groups in Victoria. And he noted that a submission from Victoria Police to a parliamentary inquiry was rather different from all the others. While those groups have been adopting a much more aggressive stance in Victoria, the submission from Victoria Police is actually drawing this equivalence between the far-right and the far-left. And it's even suggesting that it's the far left that are the ones who are feeding the growth of the right. And this was pretty fascinating to read because it's significantly different from the stance taken by other security agencies in the country. And it suggests that perhaps if there is this disagreement on the way to approach this issue, we might not be doing everything we can or should to tackle white supremacy. Well, you could argue that, no, we are definitely not doing as much as we could to to tackle white supremacy. Is there something about how Victoria is operating that that seems to indicate we have more Nazis there, the police Mm. are trying to blame the left? I mean, we saw that a bit during the lockdown. We saw the... um, uh, you know, the QAnon people and the so- sovereign citizens kind of lurking as well. But there does seem to be a particular thing with Victpol about this, whereas in New South Wales it's just about strip-searching children. Yeah, yeah I don't know. I mean, I, it, it's a strange position for Vicpol to take. Um, you know, you could be really cynical and say, well, that's just the history of security policing in Victoria and, you know, there's, there's a reason that ASIO was headquartered in Victoria until the mid-'70s. Um, but you know, it's, um, 
I don't know. Vic Pol's kind of Vic Pol's almost the third rail in Victorian politics. It's the one institution that no politician, Labor or Liberal, is going to dare contradict or cross. Um, and so they can get away with a very great deal. And they're also in, assisted by this sort of um, widespread assumption that corruption is kind of a north of the Murray thing. Um, <laughs> that you know that you know there are bad things will happen with Vic Pol, but fundamentally the political culture is is clean down here in a way that it just isn't in in um, you know. Uh, Certainly, Queensland in or Fitzgerald era Queensland, but also you know some of the stuff that's mm. gone on in, in New South Wales over the years. And I, I mean, I think there's there's something almost you know willfully blind about that. That um, you know this idea that it just, it just doesn't function the same way down here. I, I don't know that that's necessarily the case. And I mean, yeah, but I mean, certainly, uh, yeah, we did see with the lockdowns, we did see some very odd kind of reasonably ephemeral um, connections forming between. Um, you know, or loose associations forming between people that had really disparate concerns. So anti-vaxxers who were actually quite fragmented before COVID came along, certainly more than they were 10 years ago. Um, but also, as you say, these um, the far right sort of groups, which is, you know, Andy Fleming and others have demonstrated are really fragmented and fractured in, in the way they operate and spend a lot of time fighting amongst themselves rather than anyone else. Um, yeah, but there are some weird sort of connections that form. I do find it odd that Victoria does think it doesn't have the kind of corruption we would think of because it was you know the second richest or Fiona Patton would say richest city in the world during the gold rush of course there is corruption mm. and a friend of mine worked for the Victorian Police Integrity Commission for a while and he he certainly has a view mm. on the level yeah. of corruption no, there, there absolutely is involved. Yeah, things go on absolutely things go on and, and again they're, they're they always have been there, but again, I think we haven't. It, it's never been high profile in the way it has been in other states or other jurisdictions. We don't get the same kind of footage, until fairly recently, at least, the same kind of footage of you know brown paper bags, you know, being mm. handed over in car parks and things, or you know, um, but you know, which I mean, still stuff like that still what? does happen. We're still dealing with the, the Adam Somurek fallout in the Labor Party here and around branch stacking and things like that. So. Well, here's, here's the thing. I mean, I'm originally from South Australia and the corruption there is, you know, meant to happen discreetly behind the, uh, you know, heritage green painted doors. Uh, whereas, you know, Victoria, uh, not Victoria, Queensland and New South Wales have had substantial royal commissions to, you know, surface a lot of this mm. stuff. So it's left as a huge steaming pile on the footpath for everyone yeah. to see. Uh, it's the nature of the beast. The thing, the thing that's always the thing that's always jumped out at me just on this is that Victoria decided it needed a commission like ICAC, um, yes. which was good that they did that. Um, but they obviously didn't want to call it ICAC, but they wanted to make it clear what it was. So they called it IBAC, um, yes. which is the Independent Broad Based Anti Corruption Commission, which is clearly not IBAC. That would be IBABAC. <laughs> So it's just um, <laughs> it's a dreadful <laughs> acronym, and it, it's it's one of these interesting kind of you know following Sydney but trying to be different things. <laughs> it does keep coming back to this weird, you know, connection between the two cities, which of course is in the constitution, even with the whole mm. why Canberra is in Canberra thing. That's a thing which segues to Canberra. That wasn't planned. I know that you <laughs> think about the concept of time. And I wonder whether time has any meaning anymore, because it's only Monday that Scott Morrison said this. Today, here and in many cities across our country, women and men are gathering together in rallies, both large and small, to call for change, 
and to act against violence directed towards women. It is good and right, Mr Speaker, that so many are able to gather here in this way, whether in our capital or elsewhere, and to do so peacefully to express their concerns and their very genuine and real frustrations. This is a vibrant Liberal democracy, Mr Speaker. Not far from here, such marches, even now, are being met with bullets, but not here in this country, Mr Speaker. Not here in this country. This is a triumph of democracy when we see these things take place. Triumph for democracy, mm. Patrick. Yeah, Burma is not far from here. No, well, <laughs> well no. Thing. Like, that's... I saw actually the other day, apropos of that, uh, someone was posting a, a, like a map showing Chinese ships off the West Australian coast and said, look, these two Chinese ships are in the same area. And I go... Yeah, yeah, a thousand kilometres apart. They're in yeah. the area called the ocean. They mm. are as far apart <laughs> as London and Berlin, the yeah. same area. We have an odd... Wow, that opens another whole can of worms about Australia's fear of things, which really are quite a way away, but then we are quite a way away from everything. Yeah, well, it's... it's, a, it's, a, it's it, 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 living at the fringes of a continent this big... Um, to a certain extent, distorts our, our ability to make sense of space and things. And and also people that come from other more densely populated places can't understand it, you know. So, I mean, like when the Peter Falconio um, disappearance happened and, you know, the um, the media overseas were like, oh, this sounds sus. How come they can't find a body? And it was like, because you're talking about a search area the size of France and there's nothing <laughs> in it. So, it's like, you know, it, it's... Yeah. It, it, uh, well, well, you know, hardly pretty much no one lives in there. You know, um, there's a chunk of New South Wales that's the size of Hungary and has 1,500 people living in it and no council. So you know, it's um, you know, it, it, it's hard to to get your head around that kind of space. It's hard to get your head around what Scott Morrison just said too. I mean, mm. he he thinks often he's being terribly hard done. Well, that is often the case. Yes, he thinks he's being very hard done by 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 people saying that what he said was inappropriate there, but. You know, it's a pretty low bar for democracy if the government isn't shooting people. Mm. Yeah, and, and look, being... and I'm glad we've we've you know leapt over that bar. That's that's a positive, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, I mean, put it in a criminal context. If somebody said, you know, oh yes, your honour, I did stab that man to death, but you know, think about all the people that have died in war. You know, it, yeah. th that wouldn't fly, and it's it's structurally, you know, more or less the same argument. <laughs> And worst things happen. Worst things happen at sea as a way of um, justifying not taking action on, <laughs> That's on right. a social issue. Oh dear! I think we need a change of subject. Supporters of this podcast are often by trigger words or conversation topics to throw into the stream, Patrick. And we've got a couple to look at today. Sil Mobile, Silvano, who's uh, a long-time supporter, uh, he, he only had one word owed to him, but he's anagrammed it to be a rare kid keg, which he says is an anagram of Kierkegaard. It is an anagram of Kierkegaard or Kierkegaard, if you want to try and say it like the Danes do. Although we lived in Denmark for two years and I worked every day in a centre dedicated to the work of Søren Kierkegaard, which is who I did my PhD on and a lot of my postdoctoral oh. work on. 
And um, this is, I this swear is to an God, excellent I, I, accident. Yes. Yeah. No. I, I swear I have never actually. I, 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 I don't think I've heard a Dane say the word exactly the same way twice. I think it's subtly different every <laughs> every single time they pronounce the word Kierkegaard. But it's it's Kierke, which is literally the word for graveyard. It's it's it's, it's literally churchyard in terms of its elements. So it's it's the okay. it's still the modern Danish word for for graveyard. So Kierkegaard is buried in a Kierkegaard. I could even see that looking at the word. So, who who was this guy? Why is he interesting? So he was a nineteenth century. Couple, couple of um, so he was a nineteenth century Danish um, philosopher um, from a weird sort of background, I guess. Who um, you know, he never held an academic position or anything like that. He, he did uh, his magister, which is equivalent to his doctorate in theology, but um, he inherited all this money from his father, with whom he had this weird sort of relationship. Um, and just spend all his time writing these books, written often under pseudonyms. I mean, he's got all these different pseudonyms who all kind of disagree with each other, and they've got this weird authorial practice going on of presenting these different life views. And um, for me as a philosopher, the thing that's always attracted me to to Kierkegaard's writings is that um, he never lets you forget that you're a living, breathing, concrete, mortal person sitting here reading these words. Um, and that he's, you know, he's talking about things like anxiety and death and salvation and, um, you know, uh, how you relate to the very fact that you're going to die. But he's also like, you can't let yourself abstract yourself out of that. You can't let philosophy take you away from the full horror of these questions and the full import of these questions by sort of turning yourself into pure abstraction, which is what he thought his age was doing. Everyone was becoming so abstracted and so um, detached from things and reflective that they weren't actually living with the sort of passion and intensity appropriate to um, the fact that you're a living, breathing human being careening towards your death. Um, so, yeah, there's a real kind of vibrancy and, and, and literary quality and, and a real kind of, um, you know, significance to Kierkegaard that, that um, I think it makes him quite distinct as a philosopher. Is he readable? You kind of implied he some was. of it is, yeah. Some of it is. Some of it gets pretty turgid. Um, I mean, everything in the nineteenth century does, though. But um, some of it gets pretty turgid. But some of it's actually pretty readable. And, and there are some really nice literary sort of moments where he does actually um, sort of transcend the project of writing philosophy and, and just you know write really beautiful text. Now you're described as a continental philosopher, or at least some of your your book, which we'll come to later, is filed under continental philosophy. Mm. I assume the continent is Europe? Yes, but it's a it's really um it's it's a stylistic determinant as much as anything. Um and continental philosophy is one of those words of which there are a great many in English um, Christian is one, actually. It's one of those words that's used almost as a term of abuse by the opponents, then gets adopted by the people who it's applied to. So it was ah. actually so. Sometime in the twentieth century, you have Ang- a, a number of Anglo-American philosophers who start to identify themselves as analytic philosophers, and analytic philosophy likes um, clarity of language, precision, um, conceptual analysis of words, um, quite closely aligned with um, the uh, the natural sciences and takes itself and what it's doing to be largely ahistorical. So it's trying to just get it, you know, universal timeless truth. These are exaggerations, but that kind of gives you a sense of what they're doing. Um, and then they define themselves against what they called continental philosophy. So that's the sort of philosophy associated with um, particularly French writers, but but others as well. Um, and there's still that that is a real kind of divide. You know, you'll still find a lot of you know analytic philosophers who think that you know Derrida is rubbish, and you'll find a lot of continental philosophers who think that analytic philosophy is dry and uninteresting. Uh, it's like that in almost every field, really, isn't it? Mm. So where where 
so if I was wanted to quickly learn philosophy, where would I start? What's a good way to get into this? Uh, you're already doing it. Everyone is. Everyone's always doing philosophy, whether they realise it or not. Um, so, oh, come uh, on. That's a bit like saying everyone's always doing physics, whether they realise it or not. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, you know. yeah. Insofar as you're composed of, <laughs> composed of fundamental particles, yes. Yes. Um, well, no, but we are. Well, I suppose you don't do that consciously. Though, do you? No. No, everyone's always, you know, I mean, this is always the thing when people say, oh, philosophy is a waste of time. And you say, why is it a waste of time? Oh, well, because it doesn't, you know, you can't make any money out of it. It's not producing. It's like, why is that the important? <laughs> thing to do and within two or three moves you've got them doing philosophy you've got them trying to ask questions about fundamental value or or significance and you know it's 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 something you can't avoid doing so you may as well try and do it as well as you can i was thinking that i mean yes oh that's such a waste of time they say before sitting down to watch married at first sight on <laughs> you know or or go to the football or whatever it might be all of which may well actually be perfectly um, good good ways to spend your time happy. but it needs to be defended you know it's all you know there's those two there's those two things that you know um, socrates said you know the unexamined life is not worth living um, mm. The contemporary philosopher Galen Strawson said the examined life is greatly overrated. So somewhere between those two, there's a nice, um, <laughs> there's a nice sweet spot. S- somehow that feels like it's cheating, but I, <laughs> <laughs> the poles apart, right? Between between genocide and endless love, there is a happy <laughs> medium. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's very Aristotelian. So, if if, if, you, oh. if you if you like that, you can start with Ar- if, if that bothers you, start with Aristotle. Start with an Anacomachean Ethics, and then see what's wrong with that, because that's Aristotle's idea: is that you know the, the virtues are a mean, like the sweet spot in between an excess and a deficiency. Uh, the TV series The Good Place got quite a bit of profile because mm. it was all about moral philosophy in a sitcom. Uh, and there's also, as my friend the Snarky Platypus says, a bit racist, but. Uh, <laughs> But putting the racism aside, um, how the often good do pl- we have to like you know <laughs> append that to everything? <laughs> putting the racism aside, I know, I know. my kids are getting oh. into the Simpsons, which is a weird thing to watch because, like oh. you know, I, I was a teenager in the nineties, so most of my brain is composed of Simpsons quotes, and like it's kind of funny watching it, and they're like. Dad, this is really racist. They're like, yeah. But then they're like, but putting the racism aside, it's quite funny. (laughs) That's right. Well, putting aside the racism of the good place, uh, and and the fact that you know it's an American show, so everything has to be said out loud, and it's all Mm. exposition. Um, Have you seen it first? Otherwise, this whole conversation is stupid. Uh, we can make it work, but no, I haven't actually watched Everyone keeps telling me I have to watch it, and oh, um, I watch so little TV, and I'd mm. like to say that's because I'm, you know, reading important books and writing poetry and, you know, but you've seen my Twitter feed. You know that's not what I'm doing with my time. Yeah. Um, I, but um, it is, from what little I have seen, like it, it's it, it's very intelligent TV, and I'd, I'd never thought I would actually see a TV program that would engage with philosophical material quite like that. Mm. Um, and that in itself is a really positive thing, and I think it speaks to the diversity of the TV landscape right now, and the fact that you can actually get things like that up, um, yeah, because the delivery mechanisms have changed, and it's possible to do these things. But but also because there's just I think more willingness to take risks on stuff. Yeah, and well, you know, production costs are down, distribution costs tending mm. to zero. All of that, fewer people in the way. All right. Well, look. I'll- but if it gets if it gets people talking about philosophy, I think that's fundamentally a good thing. You know, um, you know. And they the- made jokes about the trolley problem. 
Yeah, well, this is true, and and um, as cyanide and happiness do too. Actually, the Exposum um, web comic they they do have been doing trolley jokes lately, which has been good. But um, but yeah, I mean, it gets and there's Kierkegaard references in there, and there's all that sort of stuff. So I mean, that that's that that is pleasing to me. I'm, I'm I've lived long enough to be culturally relevant. <laughs> uh, I haven't, and I'm older than you. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, thank you, Silvano, for a rare kid keg. And uh, Dave the Happy Singer. Ah, um, yes, yes. Lovely he, man. He didn't, he didn't actually buy a trigger word, but I gave him a free one because reasons. Uh, he chose the word puce, saying <laughs> he doesn't like that word. He says, I don't like that word. I'm not sure it captures my degeneracy in all its dimensions, though. Uh, that relates to a conversation. So puce. Mm. What does puce mean to you? Well, it's P-U-C-E. a colour. It's a colour, yes. but um, it's also. I was thinking about this. It, it's. It, I mean, to me, the word puce is unnecessary because it's clearly just magenta. I don't think there's any real difference between puce and magenta, is there? Well, Oxford languages call it a dark red or a purple brown colour, which is mm. to me like two different things. Yeah. I always thought of puce as a much paler colour, a bit more oh, like okay. salmon. Oh, oh no, that doesn't. No, that's not how I've always thought of as a very vivid colour. Um, yeah. But it's also, of course, the French word for flea. Oh, P U C E, puce is the French word for flea, and I only know this because in year seven I did in my school we had to do French and Italian in year seven. Then you had to drop one of the languages when you got to year eight, and then you had to either drop a language or drop commerce in year nine. And um, I absolutely sucked at French. Like, I am just useless at French. So, naturally now, a good part of my workday is teaching French philosophy. Um, Of course. But, uh, you know, but I absolutely sucked at French. And we had to memorise this poem um, called Une Pousse, you know, a flea, about a flea that catches a dog to get from one place to another. And I can still sort of recite the words more or less, but um, and my wife did high school French to a much higher level. And one time I actually just tried reciting it and she's like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, none of this is French. (laughs) No you know, she's like, that is awful. You would start a war if the French heard you talk like that. So, but anyway, it's... Um, it, for, for, for a while, like, I, I used to convince gullible people I could speak Polish because I just had this <laughs> string of <laughs> syllables. And, and I said, my strach, yatni, oh, how did it go? But it was about double that length. And I said, that is Polish for my uncle has a brown cow. I, I don't know what it is. It's just a bunch of syllables. But Polish has People perfectly. Are- is it Polish that has perfectly regular rhythm? Like the the it's the stress is totally regular on oh, words. Oh, a number of languages do that. Certainly, some uh, South Asian languages do that too. It's okay. all da 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 da, and then you just yeah. This is a good thing out. we lived in. This is a good thing we lived in Denmark. Um, you know, different languages have got. Um, like different sort of rhythms to them for things, and people say, you know, French is the language of love, and Italian's good, you know, good for you know passionate displays of emotion, and you know, German's good for anger or whatever. Danish has the perfect rhythm rhythm for telling someone off. Like oh. it's just it just hits these notes of the you can go see a den here, eek a den. Oh, so yes, it's got this real yes. kind of like you know. <laughs> It's like if you watch Danish crime drama, they appear to be constantly berating each other because it's just got this real kind of you know. An Australian Chinese friend of mine says that you can tell someone's speaking Cantonese because it sounds like they're complaining, <laughs> which, I, which, which I think is very cruel. Oh, that's not but, good. No, but leaving the racism good. aside. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. Back to the flea. Fleas are really annoying. 
Yes. Um, okay, so I'm wrong about what colour a flea is or something. <laughs> yes. Flea, yeah. Unpus is not puce. Let's go with that. You can probably construct a sentence in which that, that yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the French for puce is. It's probably flea. <laughs> <laughs> So you want to hear something quite funny. Uh, this is me breaking into the recording. We recorded on uh, Friday, and this is now Sunday. The French word for puce is flea, because the word puce and puce for flea, that's where the name of the colour comes from. According to Wikipedia, puce is, yes, a dark red or purple-brown colour, a brownish-purple or a dark reddish-brown I mean, there's distinctions without a difference, right? But it is directly the French word for flea because that colour, puce, is the colour of bloodstains on linen or bed sheets, even after they've been washed because of flea droppings or after a flea has been crushed, putting bloodstains on the sheets. So puce actually means flea colour, and the first French use of puce as that colour name dates to the 17th century. Uh, and there's there's another source which says uh, back to the 14th century, but the 17th century is the one that the Oxford Dictionary of English uh, Etymology uses. So fleas are puce-coloured, except they're not, they're black, and, and puce is a flea. I'm glad that's clear. I also want to just clear up something about self-heating underpants. Yes, they're a thing. I was thinking of the the the, ther- the thermochemical ones, like thermal socks that heats up. But self-heating underpants come in either battery or USB powered. Uh, they're they're used uh, for. Uh, either keeping you warm when outdoors um, or for uh, dealing with people with arthritis or, or poor circulation. Uh, the USB-powered ones are handy and more modern. And if you're on a motorbike, wear, wear your self-heating underpants under your bike leathers, plug them into the motorcycle's electrical system. And there's another sort which says they're heating underpants, but they have tourmaline crystals in them for magnetic therapy, which, I mean, is not an actual thing. So there you go. While I'm here, the quick housekeeping. Thank you, this episode, to all the people uh, who um, contributed to the 9pm Autumn Series 2021, which this is an episode of. I listed many of you last time. You are all listed on the website. I will highlight more of you, uh, such as Silvano and uh, Dave the Happy Singer, uh, as their contributions to the conversation flow uh, come up in coming episodes. Uh, There will be an episode next week. Uh, No, not next week, but the week after, so just before Easter. I haven't locked in who that is with yet, but it'll be one of the people you know about. Uh, We've got cartoonist... Uh, Kathy Wilcox in the queue. We've got cartoonist John Kadelka in the queue. Uh, we have open source intelligence analyst and researcher of internet disinformation Elise Thomas uh, coming up. There was another. Is that four more? Uh, look, I can, you know, you know who's coming up. 
doesn't matter. I will inform you by the emails and the Twitters when things uh, are scheduled in more solidly. Uh, and if you'd like to become a supporter of the pod, because uh, this is, uh, well, I won't say a time sink, but it does take work and, uh, uh, you know, I've got to, I've got to survive. Uh, go to the 9pmedic.com slash tip, the 9pmedic.com slash tip. You can pause the podcast now and do it now if you want. That would be lovely. Thank you. Around 9am on Sunday the 30th of June, 1867, Thomas and William Graham and Alfred Berman set out from home with another boy named Griffiths. It was reported at the time that they were looking for wild goats, but nobody really knows for sure. The two Grahams, one was nearly seven and the other one was just four, and Mum had said, you know, look after, look after your little brother. And, of course, the, the Berman boy, the five-year-old, he was the last of the, the, all the boys and he got all these hand-me-downs, whereas the Grahams tended to be fairly well-dressed. They got, uh, got down to the creek and apparently they, uh, they weren't supposed to cross the creek. The three boys were going because the oldest boy said, oh, come on, let's go. And the fourth boy said, no, I'm not allowed to. So that's why he went back. Well, that boy did go back, but the other three continued, and that is a whole thing uh, that you did, Pat Stokes, because that's mm. your voice there, a grab from the new ABC radio documentary, The Lost Boys of Dalesford. I listened to that just before we recorded. It's a fascinating story. So these kids are... 150 years ago, what happened to them? So there were three kids who, the eldest of them was only six, right, six and a half. He's a really little boy, so six, five and four. And um, they left home one Sunday morning um, from uh, where they lived at a place called Connell's Gully, just on the um, the western edge of, of uh, the town of Dalesford. Um, and they just went off for a walk. They went looking for goats, apparently. Um, they went with a fourth boy named Griffith who turned back. Um and, um, you know, they just were gone all day and then they meet various people during their walk. So on the completely opposite t- side of town, they run into um, a man named John Mutch who says, boys, what, what, what are you doing? You're going totally the wrong way. You need to f- you follow the telegraph line. It'll take you right back into town and you'll be okay that way. Um, but they don't. They just go off into the bush and then they turn up at um, a place called Specimen Hill and they meet other people there who... Um, you know, it's, it's actually a bit contested what happened when they got to Specimen Hill, but these boys just kept walking and walking and um, in the end they disappeared and um, their disappearance was a cause celeb not just in Melbourne or in Victoria but actually in the whole whole of the Australian colonies and in fact it made news as far away as London, it made news in parts of Asia, it became this sort of international um, cause celeb that these boys had, had vanished and um, they were missing for, you know, I think it was like 12 weeks in the end. So do we want to spoiler it and say what happened to Well, them? if they because disappeared that, into the bush for 12 of... weeks, you've got a fair idea of how it ends. Um, okay, so yeah, it's, right. it's, this enough. is not a happy, feel-good story. Um, but there had been happy, feel-good stories. So kids disapp- kids wandered off into the bush and stuff. That was a thing that happened. Um, and a few years before, um, a f- three children had been found in Horsham in Victoria 
Um, and their the older sister Jane Jane Duff had sort of you know held blank held her dress over them to, as blankets and you know held the younger boys and kept them alive and they were all found alive and well and again she became this sort of you know um, colonial era celebrity and she lived until the 1930s as you know she was always even though after she married she was always Jane Duff who had saved her brothers in the bush and so there was this kind of and and the, more often than not actually when kids disappeared into the bush they were found. Um, and there were usually like, you know, First Nations people were brought in as trackers and they were very, very good at, at, at finding them. Um, but part of the interest, so part of the interest in the story was that um, the, like I've, I've always had a connection with that area. We, we spend a lot of time up there now actually. Um, and um, so I've always known sort of about the story, but there's a lot of interesting academic work around that story as well, which is that Australia is the only settler colonial society where missing kids becomes this big defining cultural trope. Um, wow. You know, kids, kids disappear everywhere. They, kid, you know, Canadian kids, American kids, New Zealand kids would disappear, would wander off. Mm. But it was only in Australia where this becomes this really big defining image where it, you know, it becomes a well-known event that everyone in the community knows after a while how to, how to deal with everyone. Pulls together and there's this big search and that still happens today. Um, and it, it permeates literature, you know, dotting the kangaroo through to picnic and hanging rock. Um, you know, the idea of kids wandering off into the bush um, is this, has this real kind of resonance in Australia that it just doesn't have in other settler colonial societies. And I'm thinking this is different again from like anyone from Adelaide knows about the Beaumont children, three mm. kids who went missing. But it's pretty clear they were abducted in some way. Yeah. You know, and and there's more evidence for that. In this case, yeah, it's just wandering off into the great unknown. I'm I'm really surprised to hear mm. that this is not a thing that is in all of the other colonies yeah, around um, the world. Yeah, it's it, it's partly partly I think um, because there's a different kind of contact history between First Nations people and colonials in 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 or colonists in other countries. So. Um, in America in the 17th and 18th century, you actually get um, what are called captivity narratives where you have um, colonist accounts of being um, abducted by um, native peoples there um, and then the, the ones who come back then write down their stories. And, so, and that actually becomes the first kind of North American colonial genre of literature and it was hugely important and popular. Um, in Australia, that doesn't happen in the same sort of way. Um, there are a few cases where people have assumed that children have disappeared have been kidnapped by um, Aboriginal people, um, but they almost certainly weren't. Um, and Joanne Faulkner, who I talked to in the program, um, who's at Macquarie, makes a point, actually is not in the program, but she made the point to me that there just wasn't part of the warcraft of, of um, the Australian First Nations peoples. It just, they just didn't do that. Um, so it's... Um, it, 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 there's a different kind of history there, and a different, and um, but that those captivity narratives I think are interesting too. Um, there's an amazing book if you ever get the chance. There's a book by um, an ethnographer called Suzanne Lepselter, who wrote of her experiences living with um, what she de describes as UFO experiences. People who basically think that they've had experiences with aliens, and people who think they've been abducted by aliens, and it's a very sensitive and, and, and generous book. And um, but she connects those late 90s, early 2000s alien abduction narratives in North America with the, the captivity narratives that you get in colonial America. And she said the same cultural anxieties are cropping up in both, the same concern about a dark alien 
world out there beyond that threatens to suck you into it and to, to drag you away. And something like that, I think, is kind of operative in, in the Australian settler colonial imaginary too, the idea that the bush is this alien other place that threatens to – and it's, it's an indigenised place. It's a, a place that, that in which, you know, you don't belong and the people that do belong there are either gone because you've killed them or, or, or driven them out um, or they are still there. And so there's this sort of, you know, Notion of the bush is this fundamentally threatening alien place, and which haunted. you don't, you, yeah, which you're not, yeah, and haunt, and which you're not really meant to be, and because mm. basically you're not. <laughs> Something really grabbed my ears uh, in listening to that, and again, the title of that is "The Lost Boys of Dalesford." Links, as always, in the the podcast website. The idea that kids from 150 years ago, the woman who we, we heard speaking then, saying that, well, you know, kids back then had to be more self-sufficient. Mm. Uh, and that relates to something I've been following sort of called the free-range kids movement. Now, I've, I've put a map in front of you, and mm. this is from an article, uh, gee, in the, the Daily Mail of all papers from 2007. But it shows how over four generations the kids eight or nine years old, so even older than the kids we've just been hearing about, how far they could walk. And great-grandfather George in 1919 was allowed to walk six miles from Sheffield down past uh, Baton or Beaton, Baton into the Rother Valley, if people are from that part of the world. He could go by himself, age eight, to go fishing, six miles from home. And then it shows down through the next three generations until we get to son Ed, who was eight years old at the time of this. He can't go past the end of his own street, 300 yards, 300 metres, mm. without a, without an escort. What... I mean, you're nodding there. This is this is almost universal, isn't it? What what yeah. have we lost in these four generations, apart from a sense of geography? She probably won't mind me mentioning. Our eldest um, recently discovered that when she goes to high school, we won't be driving her. She'll have to walk. And she was like, oh, I can't walk all that way. And I'm like, look, I had to walk a kilometre oh, from no. home to the station and then 30 minutes on the train and then another kilometre mm. at the other end of school. And then and the thought, train oh, would break down and we yeah. had to push it uphill. We yeah, had to mine thought, the coal ourselves. In the snow. And, yeah, and so yeah. Was, you know, I've turned <laughs> into one of those, you know, five miles in the snow people. But but it's true. You know, it's absolutely true. Um, yeah, we, we I, I, I know that as a parent. Like, we don't let our kids... Um, walk as far on their own as, as we did. And it's not as if the world is more dangerous. It's not as if, um, you know, there's there are inherently more risks out there. It's just that the mores have changed. It's safer I think, than ever before. It is. It absolutely it's is safer so, than ever so before. so many measures. Yeah. And, I mean, the odds, you know, we were told as kids we had it drilled into us, all oh, stranger danger and all this sort of stuff. But the reality is if it's it's probably safer now than it was then and it was actually very safe then. Um, it's, But, I, I mean, I think a lot of it, is uncertainty though that like you don't know you don't know how far your kids should be going you don't know what they should be doing and also there's this kind of you know you do what the people around you are doing mm. you know and and that's what defines what counts because i mean parenting we're all just making it up as we go along there's no real handbook for it it's just white knuckling your way through and um you know we that's why we, i could never be so you a look to the people around I'd, I'd be a terrible parent no i i whatever off you go yeah, yeah. you know <laughs> Leave my fucking whiskey alone. Yeah. <laughs> or not. Your choice. Somebody once said, um, yeah, that when you have the first kid and they eat dirt, you take them to the hospital. When the first one eats when the second one eats dirt, you don't really um you, you just monitor them. When the third one eats dirt, you're like, Great, I don't have to cook your dinner now. Um yeah, you know, so and that it's, makes sense. <laughs> yeah, but I don't know, we, we only have two, so I don't know what the third one's like. But um yeah, it's I think it's um 
yeah, it's something that you just have to sort of make up as you go, really. I mean, I, I, you know, on the whole, you know, grew up in the country on a farm, learned to take care of yourself, you know, what do you do? But I, I sometimes wonder, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not young. Um, what if I have a heart attack in the street? And I think, well, you know, when I was a lad, when I was a lad, there we go. <laughs> uh, when I was a lad, we're all in the Boy Scouts and we learnt first aid and this, that and the other. So if I have a heart attack in the street now, what happens? Well, I know that someone will film me. And so that'll be, you know, <laughs> so that'll be good. Um, and even then more broadly in society, like if I have a heart attack on the train, well, there aren't train guards, there aren't platform staff or anything like that mm. so much now, but there will be five camera angles of me dying of a heart attack <laughs> on a late night train. And great. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Um, You're donating your body to content, basically. Oh, yeah, but, oh, I've I mean, done that at, before. <laughs> <laughs> I was young, needed the money. Um, yeah, uh, but, I mean, it, it's um, yeah, it, to to draw back to philosophy, actually. So, um, Alastair McIntyre, who's um, he's still going. He's in his nineties now. He's still publishing. Um, who's he um, talks in his book, Dependent Rational Animals, about this point that he says, you know, philosophers don't talk about how completely interdependent human beings are. And he gives exactly that mm. example. He says, if, if I have a heart attack in the queue at the bank, I'm suddenly massively dependent on all the people around me to save my life. You know, what happens next depends on what the people immediately around me do. And that's mm. basically our condition all the time. We're constantly dependent upon other people. We're dependent for what we know. We're dependent for uh, our very survival. Um, and we, we are very, very good at hiding that kind of interdependence from ourselves. Mm, and it hits me because it, over the years I have often been in situations where I have been the person who is on the scene of some, I won't say disaster, but an mm. event has happened, a car has crashed, a thing has caught fire. I mean, shush everyone listening to this. I have <laughs> actually been where I've had to put out. I'm sure, Pat, you know about the Central Railway Station thing. No? Mm, that's right, do. Okay. Um, <laughs> Sydney Central Railway Station. Even, even if I didn't, even fire. if I did, I'd probably just let you do this anyway. <laughs> That's true. Sydney Central Railway Station did catch fire, and I happened to be going through the station just as the alarm sounded, and it was the vac- evacuation alarm. So, a number of things happened there. One is that I found. Um, if you're on a date, most people you're on a date with, including this chap, uh, are not amused by the idea of going into a burning building. I switched into media <laughs> thing. Oh, go stations on fire, phone on audio record. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I never heard back from him. Um, but, <laughs> but it. It turned into this whole thing. Yes, you started. And a week later, I was on a train going through Town Hall Station. And just as the, I wasn't getting off at Town Hall, but just as the doors opened, the evacuate alarm sounded for Town Hall Station. So there's this whole thing <laughs> that I set fire to Sydney Central Station. And look, all I've got to say is what I always say things just catch fire sometimes. This is true. Yeah. This is true, but you did just actually utter the phrase that you did it. So. <laughs> that can um, <laughs> no, no, I. Oh, yeah, we can edit that out. <laughs> what, what on earth were we talking about? 
Oh yes, yes. Being being the person having to deal mm. with some some event that requires you to be part of the solution, you know, as the society around us mm-hmm. fixes things. That's all very disorganized. Um, tell us about your book instead. Your new book. <laughs> that'll, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'll cheer let's us talk up. about that. Uh, yeah, the one on death. Yes, no, that will cheer yes. everyone up. The book about Dig- death. Yeah, digital souls: a philosophy of online death. Yeah, and so, you're not just talking about being pwned on Twitter. No, um, is that how we're saying it now? With a P. Yeah, I've always how said it, say it. I've always said it pawned. Oh, I don't know. I, I've only seen it written down, so I don't know. This is. I will, this is going to be a gif jif thing, isn't it? This is going to be. Yeah, it, it is. I, I will conduct research and uh, put that at the end of the poll. I don't know. I'm, I don't have a good track record of this. I, the 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 Dalesford piece you displayed. They actually made me re-record one line, so I had to lock myself in in the wardrobe and record the one line because they said, um, "You said prodigious. It's prodigious." And I'm it like, is. No, anyway, so yeah, so anyway, I had this huge yeah. debacle about this. I'm like, oh, that's not right. I'm, anyway, so I a debacle. <laughs> it was an enormous debacle. Enormous debacle. So I was very upset by that, and you know, cheered myself up by listening to you know nineties uh, English band, the Prodigy. But um... <laughs> your book, it's about <laughs> online it, death. It is, yeah. It's about the way in which dead people persist online, which um, has been. Uh, very much an emergent feature of particular social media era, but also before. Um, basically, when you die, you leave a lot of stuff online. Mm. Um, you leave a large uh, sort of trace behind. And how to deal with that stuff um, has been a very fraught question, but also one where all the approaches to it have been quite ad hoc. Um, so there have been some piecemeal legislative changes in recent years around the disposal of digital assets. Um, and there's been, you know, companies like Facebook and, and Twitter and others have had to work out how to um, deal with these digital legacies that people leave behind. So Facebook had to, back in 2009, um, they kept getting complaints from people saying, you know, my friend died and you keep sending me these little pop-up messages saying, hey, you haven't spoken to such and such in a while or, you know, or hey, would you like to be friends with, you know, Johnny Deadson here? Uh, and so people would get quite upset about these these things. And so Facebook said, okay, um, you can either, uh, if you're next of kin, you can either have somebody's account deleted or we can put it into a memorialized state where it's still available and, um, you know, the, the stuff is still there, but... It's the account will now be limited in what it can do. For instance, it can't make new friends. Um, that was in 2009. Twitter is still saying they have their, that memorialization is coming, but they haven't quite worked out how to do it yet. So this is a this is a long-standing problem. But they'll get to, to that after been... dealing with the Nazis. Yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> <It'll> be, <laughs> the, the, that'll be one before the Nazis. It's like you know, we'll deal with the dead right. people first. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's so it's um. It's this constant sort of problem and it's a weird thing for philosophers to be working on. But what I've found is that when I bring it up in conversation, when people are like, what are you working on? And they're expecting some sort of, you know, horrible abstract, you know, arcane thing they've never heard of. And I say, oh, I'm working on dead people online. Almost as soon as I get that out, somebody's like, oh, yeah, that happened to me. My aunt died and her account's still there and I don't know how I feel about it. And it's it's a real problem that people are dealing with. It affects people's lives in a really quite... Mm difficult and dramatic way and i've spoken to a few people who have had really really difficult times around this stuff and and difficult family dynamics and things that come into play 
Um, and yeah, it's it's an intriguing question. And of course, as the technology gets better and as we can start to reanimate these things, which we're already doing um, on different sorts of fronts, um, the question becomes, you know, what are we allowed? What are we allowed to do with someone's digital remains? Are we allowed to reanimate them? If so, in what form? Do we run the risk that we end up replacing the dead if we come up with sufficiently convincing online simulacra? Which doesn't sound entirely convincing now, but it's, you know, you think about how quickly we embody ourselves to new technology and get used to it. It's entirely possible that 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 will happen. Well, we've already had musicians perform after their death in holographic form. The whole deep fake phenomenon is -hmm. is exploding now. Um, So we're already hitting that, is this real or is it not? Can we tell? And that's with living people. Mm. So, if we bring, there's not if, a lot of difference, is there? I mean, we, it's almost at that point. Yeah, I mean, if we to bring back a nice sort of early two thousands tech buzzword, um, if we if these technologies converge, if we get convergent technologies happening, where you know you can put together um, a sufficiently convincing AI chatbot based on somebody's online track online traces. And a deepfake um, face that you can interact with. Um, if you can marry all that stuff together, um, then, yeah, you can come up with something that's actually, you know, could potentially be no more or, or no less convincing than what you and I are doing right now. Uh, this, you know, to be honest, isn't all that convincing. Exactly. <laughs> I'm glitching out all the time. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But, yeah, I mean, um, it's a real problem. We don't, we just, well, we're not ready yeah. for this. And it's, it's, it's coming any moment now, really. It's already, I mean, Microsoft have just taken out a, um, a patent on a chatbot for the dead. Um, there's a guy called Roman Majorenko who died in 2015. You can download Roman Majorenko right now as an app and chat to him um, in text format um, based on his old, um, you know, based on his old um, uh, text messages that he sent to his best friend who turned him into a chatbot after he died. So, um, and as you say, there's the, the you can go and see Buddy Holly or um, uh, Maria Callas in a hologram or Whitney Houston is mm-hmm. in a hologram mm-hmm. show. Um, if you're Kanye West, you can commission a hologram of your wife's dead father to give a speech at her 40th birthday. Um, not at all creepy. Not at all creepy. And I mean, at least the fact that see, what can be useful if you've got something to like, like glitches that break you out of the moment and remind you this whole thing is, is, is constructed. Um, and the... Kim, the, 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 the Robert Kardashian hologram actually did that because it just banged on and on about how great um, Kanye West is. Um, so, he, he had clearly been scripted by Kanye West. So, that kind of at least broke <laughs> the realism and, and, you know, reminded you that you were actually not looking at a dead man talking to his daughter. You're looking at a, a, an actor doing the voice and, I assume, and a, a deep fake reconstruction of his face. And the, pepper, the Pepper's ghost illusion, too, which they use in these things where they're, it's not really a hologram that is projecting an image onto glass. It's actually like 19th century stage technology. And then, of course, there's the uh, Black Mirror episode yeah. where uh, a, a woman's dead husband uh, is mm. uh, There's a chapter on that re-animated. in the book, actually, yeah. Um, uh, that's yeah, it's yeah, kind of in death studies. Everyone get around to reading it, so. it, but you know, no, 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 no. Uh, but um, no, in death studies, it's, it. everyone, um, everyone uses that particular example. But it is, it's, it's a really compelling example, and that that came out in 2013, I think, and that's two yes. years. Be- that's two years before the Roman Majorenko bot appeared. So wow. you know, it's we are kind of we are sort of following that one a little bit. 
Oh, see, Charlie Brooker has spoken at length about how he tries to do stuff in the future in Black mm. Mirror and it keeps happening all too quickly, you know, like Prime <laughs> Minister's fucking a pig, yeah, for I was instance. About to you know. say, yeah. I saw when, <laughs> he, when that happened. His, the pig was alive. Yeah, yeah when, when yeah. that happened, he, he, he tweeted out saying, oh, God, I hope, I hope White Bear doesn't come true. <laughs> so this other really, di- <laughs> really distressing episode. So it's- <laughs> Another change of pace. Look, we, we, we're barreling through this, but we, we we can't talk for the rest of the day because we both have things to do. Uh, speaking of fakes, the fake McCoys. Now, this uh. is a, a, a music duo you're in. Mm-hmm. I think before you... No, no, no. Before you explain it... Um, <laughs> Well, let me just play you're, you're this song. Make, you're making some optimistic assumptions there. <laughs> it's explicable. Uh, look, this is called Clivet Palmer. in these places And the voters look all the same You don't look at their faces And you don't ask their names You drop 60 million dollars On trying to dupe them all You get some randoms to be candidates and stick your face up on every wall Cause I'm Clive Palmer A shithead with money Do just what I want to do Cause I'm Clive Palmer Still owe workers money And any old billboard will do Wanna make a billion dollars Pumping coal dust into the sea Build a replica Titanic There's no end to my vanity Stole a slogan from Trump Now Twisted Sister are suing me too I once fell asleep in Parliament Three years and that's all I managed to do Cause I'm Clive Palmer An hat with money I'm shithouse at reading the room Yes, I'm Clive Palmer Got way too much money So bought me a T-Rex or two Yes, I'm Clive Palmer A butt crumb with money And LNB preferences too I'm Clive Palmer, racist uncle with money I don't give a stuff about you Mining leases for dollars The Galilee Basin will do nicely, thank you Let me loosen up your tax laws Tell me, do you want to see me do the Broadway again? Goodbye, Bronwyn. Bronwyn, goodbye. Goodbye, Bronwyn. Bronwyn, 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 goodbye, bye-bye. Goodbye, Bronwyn. Bronwyn, goodbye. Goodbye. I'm Clive Palmer, a cockwife with money. My MPs all quit within months. Yes, I'm Clive Palmer, obscene wads of money. I'm one of this land's biggest. Clive Palmer, 
This premise was funny, we've run it right into the ground. And then Clyde Palmer, caught by class with money, might buy an election somehow. When you Clyde Palmer. That's not a... That's not a complimentary song, really, is it? No, no. You, there's, there's a subtle agenda going on in there. If you listen really closely to the subtext, yeah, there's just, a slight... Yes, yes. I hope everyone caught that. <laughs> uh, so... It's, it's so, not even satire, that song. We're just, we're just being abusive. It's great. It's just, it was really satisfying to do. We did, that, that's obviously not a live recording. We did do that one live once or twice, and it was, that was good fun. So, who is your accomplice here? So, um, the fake McCoys is me and Christian Price, um, who you can also hear in the Lost Boys of Dalesford doing some of the voices. Um, so, Christian and I went to school together. We've been doing this as as the fake McCoys uh, since high school, basically. So, it's, it's more right. than a quarter of a century has passed since we started doing this stuff. Um, and we still do occasionally. We still you know, get up and do the odd gig here and there, and we do little bits and pieces. And, um, yeah, it's fun. We, Chris and I just have this weird kind of, you know, chemistry that happens when you put us in a room and we just go into this impenetrable world of in-jokes that no one else can possibly follow and, you know, there's you – know, somebody summed us up once as basically too many words and much too fast. That's pretty much how most of our routines and songs <laughs> hold together. Um, but, yeah, so it's it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's a good fun sort of thing and, and also doing live comedy for years and, and working in pubs and things doing comedy gigs is – was actually very good training for academia, surprisingly, because, um, right. you know, lecturing is a performance. And, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, you, if, if nothing else, when you do comedy, you learn very quickly when you're losing the room and you learn how to bring the pace back. And so that's actually, I found as an educator, um, comedy has been a really good training. Even if the jokes don't always land when you're lecturing, you, you at least know what the, you can at least sort of get a feel for what the room is doing and, and you don't go into your own little world of just talking when, and everyone else is tuned out, I hope. My students might disagree. And to wrap up, people in their own little world, uh, someone who is the patron, uh, really the patron cunt of this podcast, Elon Musk. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, we, we keep coming back to him because he is just such a magnificent specimen of a human being with our best <laughs> interests at heart. Uh, he has this week decided that he is now the techno king of Tesla. That's his new job title, techno king. And the chief finance officer, Zach Kirkhorn, is now the master of coin. Because, of mm-hmm. course, uh, Mr. Musk has gone down the uh, the Bitcoin Um yeah, th- th- those are titles that are really going to give your investors confidence. That's that's the way to really, particularly in a year when they've made losses and things. That's that's really the way to keep your uh, keep the people putting money into your company <laughs> convinced that the guy at the top <laughs> is not an absolute goose. But I mean, at least at least they're words. At least those are actual words, unlike whatever he called his kid. So I mean, oh <laughs> yes, was it a ash? Oh, dot then they then they changed then they had to change it because the the official character set of the database for <laughs> registering births couldn't cope with like no, what no oh. no we can't which which is interesting because I mean having a, a, a unique and arguably stupid name myself um, I am very well informed on all of the ways in which names and identities mm. happen through databases and yeah. whatever. 
Uh, do you know, such just, as, just to come back to Denmark for a second, you know about oh, yes. the name registration in Denmark. So when we, our eldest was born when we were living in Denmark and we had to, um, had to go to the local church to hand in the form. And oh, yeah. basically saying, like, you know, they register the birth there because the name um, has to be a name that appears on an approved list of first names. And if oh, it's they not, do that too. Yeah, and I, if it's not a on the list, I, th- I think that. this has now changed actually in the, in the mm. years since this happened. But um, the, what would happen was you would put down the name and then if the name was not on the list, it got sent by the Ministry of Church Affairs, I think it was. It got sent to a research team at the University of Copenhagen who would look into the name and see whether it met the criteria for a legitimate first name in Denmark, which included that it had to be um, of an identifiable gender and it had to um, not be a surname. Um, now, th- a lot of that stuff changed. In practice, though, I think they were actually much more easygoing because we actually had friends who got mm. a kid's name that w- they actually made up completely. They got that registered. So that, I mean, that, all, so all it does names are made up. Well, yes, but I mean, like they, they, they invented their own name rather than, than mm. using an off-the-rack one. Um, yes. So it's <laughs> a bespoke, um, bespoke name. name. Yeah. Yeah, um, <laughs> and so, I mean, yeah, it's, it was a weird sort of thing. And people, you tell people that and they're like, oh, that's shocking. And it's like, well... Yeah, but we there are even if you don't have a system like that, there are still kind of you know rules that, that are tacit around what you can and can't call kids, and you know that's that's why if you meet English people, they've only got like ten different names and five of them are variations <laughs> on Catherine. So uh, in that's Australia, right. Come at me, England. <laughs> well, well in, in Australia, I mean, the the official rules are that the name can be anything as long as it's not obscene or frivolous or a couple of other. You know mm. things like that, but of course the practicalities are, you know, like with with um, you know Elon Musk's kid, mm. like no, we we just have no way to record that. Um, yep. Although it's usually the system's fault, not the law's fault. I mean, we get stupid things where someone with the name surname O'Reilly can't put it in because you can't have an apostrophe mm. in a name, apparently, or can't have a space. And they go, well, the Van Helsings would like to have a word with you. Yeah. Or, you know, it's like, what you, you people are idiots. If you could choose your own job title, Patrick, mm-hmm. what would it be? We'll finish on this, I think, because... <laughs> oh, I don't know. Um, I could come up with something fun, but I like the job title I have now, which is associate professor, even though it doesn't, it's not clear what that means. You're not actually a full professor, but you're some kind of professor. Um, but I like it because it abbreviates to ass prof. And so I feel like I've, I've reached the pinnacle of my profession when I, I'm the ass prof. So it's kind of, you know, got this, you know, it's a way of introducing yourself. Uh. Uh, all right, look, all, all right, ass prof Stokes. <laughs> Asprof, I, I was just going to go for, you know, God Emperor of the Universe or something, you know, really trite like that. Yeah, but, well, you know. You've got to think about I mean, what, that, what fits on a business card, though. So, you know, it's all. God is kind of God's concise, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, God. Yeah, God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> People will get upset by that. Asprof, Pat Stokes, thank you so much for your time. <laughs> thank you. It's been a great fun. That's the edict for now, obviously. Links, as always, at the9pmedict.com if you'd like to support this podcast. The9pmedict.com slash tip. Go there, do all the things that podcast producers tell you to do. Next episode, in the week before Easter. Until then, I'm still Garyan. Wash your hands. Yeah, let's have another song.
satin Are real crapper jousting Sure they may look fetching But it offers no protection They just get stabbed They just get stabbed Oh, how they get stabbed Knights in white satin Face discrimination All of the other knights Question their sexual orientation Damsels ignore them Minstrels poke fun Dragons incinerate them Okay, they do that to everyone But it's worse when You're in white satin Oh, it really burns them And then they get Knights in white satin History books don't recall Because as far as armor goes It's not much chop at all Sure it reads better But the lens goes straight through Which is what you'd expect really I mean it is made of wood You didn't think this through You didn't think this through That's why you're getting stabbed You're really getting stabbed Repeatedly When you're bleeding everywhere Maybe you should see a doctor Dry cleaner! That'll teach you to wear satin to a facial rivalry. The 9pm edict is a skank media production. Sorry.